thought about you, but you may have had the thought in recent weeks with Megan reading our sermon text. Really, we, we brought her up here just for that, just to read those few words. And well, church, I hope that is training you uh, to know that we take all of God's Word very seriously and pay very close attention to details in the text, uh, that we are very eager and jealous for all of God's Word to be carefully uh, looked at, and uh, we'll see Megan reading larger portions of Scripture soon enough. Every Sunday, our church members drive in from Pflugerville, from South Austin, from Round Rock, from Cedar Park. Those members have come from far and far away lands such as Ohio, California, New Jersey, Washington, even other nations uh, like the Philippines, Mexico, Germany, and Oklahoma. Some members have more, some members have less. Some members are single, some are married, some widowed, some work, some are retired, some are students, old gather together with young. Some who gather lean one political direction, some lean another. Some know what good barbecue is, some don't. Some come from broken homes. Some come from whole, healthy Christian homes. In our church, we have realtors, we have educators, home-building mothers, software engineers, and nurses. And all of us, when we get together, we, we gather, we read Scripture together, we, we sing, we pray to God together, we hear God's Word preached, all centered around Jesus Christ. And usually every Sunday, if we worship for a time, we stand around and fellowship. We talk to each other about our lives. You might see us stopping to pray with one another after the service in the sanctuary or the foyer or down the hallway. And then after that, for a while, we'll, we'll go home. You might see some people leaving together to go to each other's houses for lunch that day or to go out to lunch together. And then most Sundays every month after a time of going home for a nap, maybe watch some golf, we, we come back and we pray together in the evening. And again, when our evening fellowship is over, we're standing around talking to one another. How was your week? How was that thing that I asked you about last week that you shared about? You know, I think you might have grown as a Christian. I'm really sorry to hear that that's happening in your life. You know, we should grab lunch this week. Hey, you want to pray for that right now? Hey, we should have your family over to our, to our house soon. Or praise God for that in your life. These are the kinds of things you'll just hear in conversations after our services. And then in so many ways, we get together and live in so many different ways during the week and serve one another so many different ways during the week. I think as a church, sometimes we take these kinds of things for granted. This is just kind of how we do church. Some of us have been doing this for a lot longer than other people. But this doesn't make sense. We don't make sense. All of us getting together from all these places and all these different lifestyles, all these far places, all these different kinds of people. This is the kind of differences that you might expect in line at the DMV. That you might expect to all be in line getting their, their driver's license. But this kind of fellowship, all these kinds of people, what brings us together? That's the first question for this morning. What brings us together? Second question, what is being together like? What is being together like? And finally, what keeps us together? All this from Acts 2.44. What brings us together? 
What's being together like? And what keeps us together? What Megan read for us, Acts 2.44, is part of a several-sentence overview of how the Holy Spirit affected the church, how it formed the church for the very first time. One of the things we see that the church began to do in response to the movement of the Holy Spirit and belief in Christ is that they got together and they had everything in common. They got together, they were believed, they were together, and they had all things in common. So we just want to see this morning how this is the beginning of what brings every church together, what makes the church together, so what brings us together, what's being together like, and what keeps us together. First of all, what brings us together? Well, first let me just say a couple things that don't bring us together. A couple of things that don't bring us together, first one, and there's actually a lot of things that don't bring us together, but a couple that I think are helpful for us to clarify. One thing that does not bring us together is that we are friends. That we're friends. That might sound weird to you. You're going, okay, what kind of church is this? I thought we were friends. I thought Nathan was my friend. Nope. I'm here to clarify that. Listen, sometimes I hear people talk about getting married. Maybe you've heard this from people get married. They say, I'm so happy that today I get to marry my best friend. And I love that. I think that's sweet. I think that's great. I think you ought to be friends with your spouse. But let's be very clear about something, that once you get married, you're not just friends anymore. Things have significantly changed when you get married to someone. You still tell each other everything. You still like to spend time together, hopefully. You, you still know each other better than anyone else in the world. But when a man and a woman marry one another, they become husband and wife. The minister at the end of a wedding does not say, I now pronounce you best friends. You may kiss your best friend. No, he says, I pronounce you husband and wife. You may kiss your bride. Friends, likewise, the church is the bride of Christ. We are not together because we just decided that we thought we would be a group of best friends. We just like each other. We like to hang out with each other. And that's really what binds us together. The church is not like a dating app for friendship where we find people to go to the movies with. And that's what we're really doing here is finding some people that we like to have fun with. I mean, we go to church on Sundays, but really we found some friends and that's what really connects us. Well, that's not what binds the church together. Probably half the people in this room would never be friends. Number two, something else that does not bring us together is that we are not alike. We're not alike. So we're not gathering together, we're not bound together because we are alike. We're not alike. Some of us are very loud. Where's Lily? Some of us are more quiet in the gathering. We're from different parts of the world. Some have more, some have less. Male, female, single, married, retired, widowed. We're in all kinds of different sports teams and personalities and and backgrounds, all, all kinds of sinful backgrounds, sinful temptations. We might even be political enemies to some degree, in an earthly sense. We're not, we're not here because we're alike, because we're the same. In one sense, th- this makes things like biker churches and, and cowboy churches a little strange. Uh, not to shoot at them or, or tear down something that's really good, but that's not what a church is. A church isn't a bunch of people who are like each other getting together. That's not what a, that's not what a church even is. It's not what binds us together. 
Here we have things like moms who get together with uh, moms who can't have, or excuse me, mothers or wives, excuse me, who, who can't have children, who get together with people who have a lot of children. And they fellowship together, and they pray together, and they talk together, and they talk about life and marriage together. But they're not alike in that sense. There's so many differences that might keep us apart and keep us from spending time together. So we don't get together just because we're friends. We're not a, a friend group that got together and decided to have a church. We're not here because we're alike. There's a lot of reasons that we were not gathered. What brings any church together? It's Christ. It's Christ. The Holy Spirit draws the church through the preaching that Jesus is God's Son, that He died for our sin, that He has risen from the dead, that He is now reigning in heaven. That belief in Christ is what draws the church together. Listen to Acts 2.44, the Megan Red Force. And all who believed were together. All who believed were together. What brought them together? All who believed. Suddenly there was a distinction in Jerusalem. Those who believed and those who do not. Those who heard the message and believed and those who heard the message from Peter and did not believe. Those who believed, they all came together. This word is, is, is difficult to interpret. Believed and were together. Were together. It means they, they were, in a sense. They were now one thing. There is an inside and there is an outside to those who are together. A lot of people heard the message that Peter preached about Jesus of Christ, Lord of Christ, but some people just went home. Some people said they're drunk and they're crazy. Other people said, we believe, and they came together. And when they came together, they became a thing. They became one on their own. Friends, let me just say to you, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're, you're curious about Christianity, you're wondering about church and Christ, just know that the belief that Jesus is God's Son, crucified for our sin, is the one thing that binds us together. So we have a statement of faith at our church that summarizes our shared beliefs about God, about the Bible, about Jesus, about what saves us. And it's a statement from all of us who are members of this church saying we have professed our allegiance to Jesus because we believe that He is the Son of God, that He died for our sins, that we're forgiven by putting our trust in Him, and that He's risen, that He reigns now. Every member of our church has made that declaration and agreed to that allegiance. That is the only thing that brings us together. That begins in Acts 2. The beginning of us here gathering together was Acts 2. Every week when we file in from Pflugerville and Round Rock and Austin and Cedar Park, we're, we're kind of like reenacting Acts 2 in a sense, that in there where we're coming together out of the world distinct because we share faith in Jesus Christ. It's a wonderfully miraculous thing to be able to gather with other Christians who say, I believe in Jesus too. Sin has been dividing the people of God, both from God and from each other, since the Garden of Eden. 
After Adam, and Eve, after Adam and Eve sinned against God, God removes them from the garden. And part of their curse is not only will they be at odds with God, they'll be at odds with each other. In Genesis 11, all the people of the world are gathered together, but they build a tower up to the sky. Now we know it as the Tower of Babel because God sees their pride and in punishment scatters them to the earth, all speaking new languages, making new nations. Israel, likewise, is supposed to be one. They're supposed to be God's people in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. But their sin against God, their sin against each other, ended up with them separated from God in exile, and the curse that God promised in Deuteronomy chapter 4 became true. They were all scattered all over the world, just like the Garden of Eden. But see what God is doing now. We saw at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, all these people from all these different languages are now coming together. And they hear Christ, and they believe, and now they're gathered together. It's a reversal of sin's effect, which separates us from God and separates us from each other. Now the Spirit is drawing people to believe in Jesus. Every time someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ led by the Spirit, is baptized and join the church, they become part of that movement of not separation from God and one another, but gathered together as one. It's a reverse of the curse and sin. That's what's happening here in Acts chapter 2. They're coming together. This is the first gathering together of Christians in faith that Jesus is the Christ. This is the beginning of, of churches like ours gathering under the shared faith that Jesus is the Christ. And what's happening in Acts, believers gathered together, is the beginning of what Jesus taught churches were going to be. So get with me in your Bibles to Matthew 16. We're going to look at three passages, Matthew 16, 18, and 28, and see that this is what Jesus intended those who believe in him, gathering together, coming together. And it might seem right now that these passages are just picked from random. Matthew 16, 18, 28. If you'd like to know more about why I picked these three and put them together, I'd love to talk with you after the service. But just look at them, let them stand on their own for a moment. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. We see here that Jesus explains... He is going to gather the church on the content of their faith that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is going to build the church, gather the church on the content of their faith, what they believe that Jesus is the Christ. So at this point in Matthew 16, there's still a great uh, disturbance about who Jesus is. Who is this guy doing all these miracles? And it comes crystal clear here in Jesus' conversation with Peter. Matthew 16, verse 13. We'll just read through 18. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to him, but who do you say that I am? Who am I? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't get this from yourself. You didn't read this in a book. You didn't make this up on your own. But my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you 
you are Peter, which means rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Now what is Jesus saying? What you just said about me, Peter, that is what I am going to build my whole church on. You are the Christ. Now what does Jesus mean by this word church? On you, on this rock, I will build my church. Oh, the word means gathering. It means an assembly. It means a coming together of people. Now, if, when I do our membership class on, on Saturdays, which we have one coming up next week, and Cal will be doing that one for us, we always talk about this word and what it means and Jesus' use of it. Jesus only used this word church in two places in the whole Bible. Uh, in the whole of the Gospels, that is. He uses it in Revelation. Matthew 16 and 18. There's the only two places that he uses this word. And here, I always ask our membership class, do you think in Matthew 16, Jesus is talking about the capital C church or the lowercase church? The, the big church all over the world or little churches gathered together like ours? It's usually pretty obvious. This is the whole church. I will build my church, capital C as it were, on this profession. Everyone who's a part of the church, the assembly, his polity, his gathering are those who profess that Jesus is Christ. The church is gathered by the content of their faith, the content of their profession that Jesus is the Christ. And when we get to Acts 2.44, that's what's beginning to happen. These people believe that Jesus is the Christ, just like Peter preached. They believe it, and now they're coming together, they're gathering. Go with me in your Bibles to Matthew 18.15-20. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. This is one of those passages where I'm like, you, you could probably leave here with as many questions as you're going to get answers today, but we can only do so much. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. This is the other passage that Jesus refers to the church. This is also the other passage, here I'm explaining. This is the other passage where Jesus talks about binding and loosing. The only place this phrase is used in the whole Bible, the binding and loosing. Matthew 18, 15 through 20, Jesus again teaching about the church. He's talking about when one another sins against you. He says, if your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, at this point in our membership class, I always ask, is this the uppercase church or the lowercase church, the local church? I'll keep reading. And if he listens to, if he were, and, you know, I always offer the example, you know, how do you tell it to the whole church? Do we send an email to the whole global church all over the world? And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. It means excluded from the church. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything I ask that will be done for you, my Father in heaven, by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now there's a lot there, but there's the word church. There's a word gathering or assembly again. That word that Jesus only uses is Matthew 16, 18 in the Gospels. A church is at least two or three gathered together to watch over each other and continue affirming one another's faith as credible so long as their profession that Jesus is the Christ is matched by a repentant life. 
That's what the church is there doing. They're gathering together. At least there's two or three gathered together. Who can help affirm one another's faith and if necessary, with Jesus' own authority as if he were there, remove them from the church, say, we can't say that you're part of the church because you're professing that Jesus is the Christ, but you're not living like Jesus is the Christ. So we can't keep affirming that testimony. Now listen, this is a really good thing. This has been largely absent for some time in many Baptist churches in the West. And a lot of people are frustrated with the church because it seems like all the people in the church are just as bad as all the people in the world. And we look at the church and go, they're just doing the same thing. They're getting divorced. They're, they're sleeping around. They're, they're cheating on their taxes. They're doing everything else all the rest of the world is doing. No one even cares. The Bible cares. Jesus cares. And faithful churches care. We look at this and we go, what a church does is gather on the belief of Jesus Christ and we protect the name of Jesus Christ by watching over one another. Of course, if you go to someone, Acts 18, verse 15, and they repent of their sins, we forgive them. You gained your brother. Praise God. You never hear about this again. People sometimes ask me in our membership classes, do, does this happen at our church? Does church this, do we actually remove people at our church if they just you know, have been warned once, twice, three times, and they just refuse to repent from obvious sin? My answer is, yeah, it happens all the time. We're not removing people all the time. But it happens all the time that people do Matthew 18, 15. Sometimes I hear about it. A lot of times I don't think I do. A brother goes to another brother and says, man, you just, you seem like you was really harsh toward your wife in that meeting there. You okay? What's going on? Am I seeing things the same way? How's that temptation in your life that we're talking about? You know, sister, it, it sounds like you're gossiping. We, we should just stop this conversation right now. How are you doing? What's going on in your heart? Let's just stop the gossip right now. But those things happen all the time, and we never even hear about them. So yes, it is happening, and I hope that it happens. But what we're seeing in Matthew 18 is Jesus' plan to his apostles that he's going to build the church on the content, the profession that Jesus is the Christ, coupled with those who are gathered being affirmed by their faith by living in repentance. Now, if you look at both sides of Matthew 18, 15 through 20, you see the shepherd going to find the one, he leaves the 99 to go find the one. And you see on the other side, Peter being taught a lesson about forgiveness. How many times do I do this, Jesus? You know, we got Sister Susie over here, and she keeps messing up. We just, you know, we just keep forgiving her. We just keep welcoming her back. What's Jesus? You know, Peter's question was, Jesus, do we, we forgive her seven times? Should we, should, we, should we forgive her seven times and let her stay in the church? What's Jesus' answer? Anybody remember? No, I tell you, 70 times 7, right? Now, that's not so that we can keep record, you know. Well, Steve, he, he's got 400 and, uh, 488, so uh, let's just let's watch closely. Now, the point is quit counting. Quit counting. That's not how we forgive debts. You keep repenting, we're going to keep forgiving. Over and over and over and over. Gathered around the confession that Jesus is Christ, gathering to oversee one another's professions and the affirmation of faith, and repentance. And then last one is Matthew 28, verse 16 through 20. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. In Matthew 28, Jesus has died as he said he was going to in Matthew 16. And Peter said, you're the Christ. Next thing Jesus says is, well, I'm going to go die. Peter said, I'm never going to let that happen. Jesus has died. He's now risen from the grave and been seen by many. And now he's about to ascend into heaven where he is today, this moment. 
Matthew 28, 16 records, 28, verse 16 through 20 records the last message of Christ in the book of Matthew. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Well, friends, that's exactly what's happening in Acts chapter 2, verse 44. Those who believed cried out to Peter, what should we do? What do we do now that we've heard the message that Jesus was crucified and that he's the Christ? And Peter said, repent, Matthew 18, and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Come forward to the church. Make a public profession of your faith. Be counted as the church You come, show us that your faith is on Peter. And Peter's profession, that is, that Jesus is the Christ by being baptized. Showing a public profession. Why do we do baptism? Why is that the sign? Why don't you just like sign a certificate or, you know, mail in a letter? Well, it's a picture of Jesus' death and resurrection. As we go into the water, it symbolizes our unity, our faith in Jesus' death. So come out of the water, it's a picture of unity with Jesus' resurrection. That he was raised from the dead to overcome, to fully pay for our sins. So we see in Acts 2.44 when it says all who believed were gathered, that the church that Jesus talked about, Matthew 16, 18, 28, is forming. This gathering of baptized believers who profess that Jesus was crucified for our sins, he rose from the dead, and that he is the Christ. That's what binds us together. That's what brings us together. Church, make sure that you make the profession that Jesus is the Christ the reason for our gathering, our fellowship, for our unity. It's Christ that brings us together. I wonder if you've begun to think that gathering about Christ is good, but I'm really looking for a deeper connection here. I I need someone to be like me in order to get me. I want someone who's been through something that I've been through or or shares the same worldly status as me at work. I need someone who studies the Bible like me, sings the songs that I like, someone who works the same hours as me, someone who has a certain politics so that you can fit in, so that you can be felt, you can be heard, you you can be a part. Let me encourage you, church, don't try to boil the church down to being like you, not centered on you not defined by your maturities versus what you perceive as other people's immaturities, or vice versa. Friends, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, just know that we're here to gather because we, not because we're all Republicans. Amen? Even the Republicans ought to say amen. We're not here gathered because we have some view on the Second Amendment, and that really unites us together. We really, that's our, man, that's our cause. I'm quite certain that we don't all agree on things like aliens, Different views about different science, statistics and numbers, the age of the earth, things like this. Some of of us are more, some of us are less given to conspiracy theories. I've gotten to know you guys over the years. Some of you are, you're 
you give more weight to conspiracy theories than other people. It makes me nervous. We're not here. None of those things really make us together. Christ. Christ is the thing that brings us together. The shared thankfulness that Jesus died for our sins and that He rose from the grave. That's why we get together and sing every single gathering. We come and sing about Jesus. So here's, here's the plan for as long as I'm the pastor of the church, as long as the Lord allows us to tarry, as long as there is a church, is to get together and sing our unified corporate, we are thankful that Jesus died for our sins. We are thankful for God's grace. We are thankful that Jesus rose from the dead. And that's our unity. That's us. That's what makes us us. That's what brings the church together. That was Jesus' plan in Matthew. That's what begins in Acts 2. That's what's continuing today. Churches get together around the belief that Jesus is the Christ for our sins. I've been a full-time pastor for almost 16 years now, which really isn't that long. I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor. I studied the church. I've watched the church, been members of a church, pastored a church, read books about the church. Here is something that you will find is true over and over and over and over through the years. If Christ is not the reason that you gather, whatever it is will become the reason that you scatter. If Christ is not the reason that you gather. Whatever it is will become the reason that you scatter. You want to make coming to the church, being with the church, your fellowship with the church, your love for the church, your unity in the church, something besides Christ and the gospel. And you champion that above Christ. This, I mean, we've got Jesus, and that's a well-known fact, but we were looking for this kind of unity Divisions and scattering and disappointment are on the way every time. As you stop seeing belief in Jesus as that which binds you to the church, which brings you to the church, if you try to make hobbies or friendship or even the maturity or faithfulness of the church, you try to make those things above Christ the things that make you feel connected, you'll start to judge everyone around you by that thing. And are they good at that thing? Do they agree with you on that thing? Do they support you in that thing? And it will become a thing of separation. A German pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, wrote a book called Life Together in the 1930s. And I've read it a long time ago, but Colette, was, uh, Colette, my wife, was reading it this last week, and she sent me a couple of things on it, which I thought was encouraging, made me go back and read some of it again. 1930s, the, the Nazis had not yet really begun to crunched down on the church in Germany. Uh, but they were beginning to see that it probably would happen uh, and happen soon. In that time, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book about life together as Christians, life together as a church. And I don't agree with everything he said in there. But this is particularly good when he writes about what brings the church together, what provides the church's unity. A few sentences here, a few paragraphs. On numerable occasions, Bonhoeffer says, a whole Christian community has been shattered 
because it has lived on the, base, the basis of a wishful image, you're a romantic idea of the church. Certainly, serious Christians who are put in community for the first time will often bring with them a very definite image of what Christian communal life, he offers some German word, which I'm not going to try to pronounce, what Christian communal life should be, and they will be anxious to realize it. But God's grace quickly frustrates all such dreams. Every human idealized image that is brought into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be broke up so that genuine community can survive. Those who live their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be to the very best and so honest, earnest, or sacrificial. God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idealized community dream that it would be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They enter the community of Christians with their demands, they set up their own law, and they judge one another and even God accordingly. They stand adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of community. They act as if they have to create the Christian community, as if their visionary idea binds the people together. Whatever does not go their way, they call a failure. And when their idealized image gets shattered, they see the community break into pieces. So they first become accusers of other Christians in the community, then accusers of God, and finally desperate accusers of themselves. Because God already has laid down the foundation of our community. Because God has united us in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ long before we entered into common life with them. We enter into that life together with other Christians not as those who make demands, but as those who thankfully receive from God. We thank God for what He has done for us. We thank God for giving us other Christians who can live by God's call together. Things like forgiveness and trusting promise. We do not complain about what God does not give us. Rather, we are thankful for what God does give us daily. Friends, what is it that draws us together? That brings the church together? It's Christ. It's only Christ. First, what brings us together? It's Christ. What is being together like? It's like Christ. It's like Christ. Acts 2.44 And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Belief in Christ takes us from worrying about ourselves to entrusting ourselves to God who raised from the dead, raised Christ from the dead, and then having trusted Christ takes us from being about ourselves to being about each other and for each other and centered on God and centered on each other. Doing the first two commandments. <clears throat> Doing the two commandments under which the whole law is bound. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. That's what the gospel does for us. That's what it's like to be in Christ and be in the church, is to turn from my life being all about me to the church being all about we. They were selling their possessions. Look at the next the sentences that, that come after. Cal's going to talk a lot more about this, so this is my shortest point by far. They were selling their possessions. Day by day they were attending the temple together, breaking bread 
They receive their food with glad and generous hearts. That's what this is getting to talk about. It, it's a turn from me and my life to being about us. We have everything in common. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean we have everything in common. These people are from all over the place and speak all kinds of languages, and there's weird uncles and cousins in there. But we're holding all things in common. Here's a, here's a brief reflection. The word common there, we hold all things in common, is used to show that things are common items. In other words, that they're not sacred. It, it's even the word, a form of this word, is, is used to, to say that certain things are defiled in relation to the temple. So, so common here is like ordinary. It means that they have all things in common. When we come to Christ, we don't have anything that's sacred. We don't have anything that's off limits. We don't have me time. We don't have my house. We don't have my tools. We don't have my family. And some of, some of you guys are out there, you know, clicking your guns, going, well, that's, that's communism. Cal's going to answer that question next week. I'm sure he'll do just fine. My point is, we make that turn from, my life is all about me. My stuff is all about me. My stuff is all mine. To, I've got Christ. I've got heaven. My, my inheritance is a heavenly, eternal inheritance. So I just let go of everything. Everything I have is in common now. I'm not, not, not greedy, not selfish. Seeing Christians grow in this is kind of like parenting. There's one phrase I've heard more than others in our house over the years. You have to teach people this. You don't have to teach children this. You don't have to encourage them is this. But one of the things you'll often hear across the room once... Once a disagreement has hit a pitch where you're going to you know, hear it from outside, even if you're inside, is the sentence, hey, that's mine. That's mine. Give me that. Give me that. It's mine. And having everything in common is the exact reversal of that kind of idea. I can let go of anything the Lord calls me to let go of. Seeing Christ change our whole value system comes to describe our gathering. The glory of Christ crucified leads us to value His mindset about Himself and the world. Jesus Himself said, Whoever will be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came, Jesus Himself came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And all the questions I just stirred up, Kyle will answer next week. Number three, what keeps us together? We're bound together by Christ. We have all things in common, which are going to be the next few verses, next few weeks worked out. But I just want to talk for a minute about what keeps us together. If we're bound by Christ, and life is supposed to be like Christ-likeness, what keeps us together? The only thing that will keep us together is us being like Christ. The only thing that will keep us together is us being like Christ. It's the only thing that will keep us together. Any church. As you go through the New Testament, you will find that being in the church is not all daisies and roses. With, without Christ's likeness in the church, we would break off from one another so fast. So fast. Not just the profession that Jesus is the Christ, but Christ's likeness in the way that we live. Without that, we would not be here. There are so many things, so many sins and temptations that would separate us and bring divisions and schisms into the body. 
here are some challenges that the, and struggles that the New Testament church faced. Things that kind of challenged their unity and their profession that Jesus is the Christ. One of them was division. One of them was intellectualism. One of them was immaturity. All these years go by, and these guys are still baby Christians. Still drinking milk like babies. Those are Paul's words, 1 Corinthians 3. So we've got celebrity pastors. Lack of discipline in the church. We've got lawsuits against one another. Churches suing each other. Confusion about what marriage is and how it works. Disagreement about food. Sacrifice to idols. Disagreements about paying pastors. When the church gets together, sometimes people are getting drunk. Sometimes people are going hungry. There's no food. There's people boasting about spiritual gifts. Some of them, their gatherings were chaotic and disorderly. Some of them disbelieved the resurrection should have been called heretics. All the while, they're baptizing each other on behalf of those who've already died. Now, you might recognize that this is the order of issues in just one letter to one church. One chapter at a time, those are the issues that Paul writes about to the one church in Corinth. All those things. This is not to mention all the issues that Paul writes about in Romans 1, 1 Thessalonians. How does Paul lead the church through the struggles of their own immaturity? We have a church in Ephesus, we have a church in Corinth, church in Thessalonica, church in Colossae, Philippi. What does Paul say is going to keep these churches together who gathered around the name of Christ? But man, we are sinners. I don't know if you've met us. We're sinners. We're just not Christ. The thing that will keep us together is being like Christ, growing in Christ-likeness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look with me there if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Just look at verses 10 through 13. So we, we mentioned Corinthians, wonderful example of a lot of struggles that are going on in the church in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians in your house Bibles puts you on page 952, 53. And just look what Paul says. He, he addresses the subject of division with the church. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm appealing to you by the name of Christ. That thing, the person, the profession, which you're gathered. By the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. And that there be no divisions among you. But that you be united in the same mind. In the same judgment. And now isn't that what seems to be what's going on in Acts 2, that kind of fellowship? I want you to be that kind of fellowship from Acts 2, 44. You believed, you gathered, you had everything in common. That's what I want from you. That mind, no divisions, everything in common. See the world the same way. Do this in the name of Christ. But apparently that unity does not last unless it is tended. That kind of unity does not last unless it is tended. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, Paul keeps going. Look at how Paul responds to the issue of division as an example in 1 Corinthians. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. What? I mean, surely the church never quarrels with each other. I mean, that's crazy. 
I mean, thank God, since 1985, we've never had a quarrel at Millwood Baptist Church. Amen? You can't amen, because you know it's not true. You might be in the middle of a quarrel with a brother or sister right now. Doesn't surprise Paul. It's reported to me, there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or someone other says, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ, which I think Paul means kind of air quotes. You're, you're better than everyone. You don't, you don't have a favorite apostle, you just follow Christ. Aren't you devoted? Is Christ divided? Listen to this question, verse 13. Is Christ divided? This is not a problem of division in the church, being mean in the church. This is a Christological problem. Is Christ divided? The rhetorical answer, church, is no, he's not divided. There's one Christ. Was Paul, did Paul get crucified for you guys? Some of you are saying, I followed Paul. Was Paul crucified for you, church? No. It's ridiculous. Were you baptized? When did you get baptized? Did you get baptized in the name of the person who baptized you? No, it's ridiculous. You're baptized, Matthew 28, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there's these groups in the church that have begun to identify themselves by something other than Christ. And Paul's answer is, live like Christ. Remember Christ. Think about Christ. Apply Christ to your division. He's not divided. You should not be divided. The church is those gathered by faith in Christ by looking to Christ, remaining gathered in fellowship as a testament to the unity of Christ. The only way we can do this church is if we live like Christ, is if we respond like Christ. As churches like Acts 2 form from region to region throughout Acts, struggles begin to follow. And we don't get, a lot, we don't get all of those in the book of Acts. <clears throat> Some of them we do. But we actually begin to learn that the churches that were formed in the book of Acts, they're messed up. How do we learn that? Because Paul has to write back all these letters to try to fix this stuff in the first century church. He was with the church in Corinth longer than any other church, a year and a half. And he still has to write back later going, all right, guys, is Christ divided? I mean, what are we talking about? It is Christ gathered or something else and be scattered. And that means we have to live that way. We have to respond that way to circumstances. I mean, this is Counseling and Discipleship 101. Paul's whole concept in the epistles is to take Christ in the gospel, Jesus dying for us, and apply it to what's going on in the church so that you live like Christ in order to protect and guard the gathering around the profession that Jesus is the Christ. That's what he's doing all through the New Testament. So if you're in discipleship or if you come to counseling in my office, you're going to get something like this almost every time. Every time. We might even go in a little whiteboard that I've got in my office and we're going to say, okay, what's you and your problem? Oh, well, you know, I've got this problem with so-and-so. They hurt me like this. They said this or um, something between me and someone. Okay, let's put you up here. Let's put you and let's list under you. Let's list all your problems on the whiteboard with, with, with so-and-so, with your spouse or your, your child or that other member. All right, let's just throw the other person over here. Let's just write underneath that person all the things that you're frustrated about, you're struggling with, what's going on. How are you responding to them? How is everything different if between you and them we draw a cross and we talk about Christ 
crucified for your sins. Then how do you respond to them through the cross in a different way? So that when you respond to anyone about anything, you never respond first and only to that event that is going on. You always respond through the cross and the resurrection to whatever's going on. This is Paul's mode for handling the immaturity and what's going on in the church. Take Christ and apply it to this. Take the fact that Jesus is God's son and he died for you and raised you from the dead. Now you go apply that to whatever your situation is. Let me just show you a few examples. Look in Ephesians chapter 4, 32 through 5, 2. These examples are plethora through the New Testament. We could be here all afternoon studying how Paul does this through the epistles back to the church, which was first gathered around their profession that Jesus is the Christ. That's his mode. Teach them to live like Christ in order to protect the gathering. Here's an example. Ephesians 4, 32 through 5, 2. Be kind to one another. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God, which is really a heading for the rest of chapter 5 and part of 6. Walk in love as Christ loved us. Just think about this right now. Look at Paul's command in Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another. Be kind. You know, in our world, we just assume everyone has kindness in their heart. You know, this world needs more. We just need to all be more kind. Well, we have to learn kindness. We have to be discipled in the kindness. We have to see the kindness that's in Christ. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving as God in Christ forgave you. It's unnatural to be kind. It's unnatural. But it is Christ-like. That's Paul's formula. Be like Christ. Look with me in your Bibles to Philippians 2, 4 through 8. Philippians 2, 4 through 8. A familiar passage, I'm sure, to many of you. Philippians 2, 4 through 8. Here's what Paul says. Let each of you look not only to his own interest. Don't do that. Don't go to church. Don't gather with the church. And just think about you and what you're going to get. And everything. Is the church ordered around me in the way I like it? Is it me-centered? No, don't do that. Don't, don't look out to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, isn't that part of being in the gathering? What, what are you going to be like in the church? Look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Well, that kind of community will last for a while. Where does that come from? Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Don't look to your own interest. You remember Jesus, who was God himself, and he set that aside, in a sense, so that he could go to the cross and die for you. He looked to your interest. You looked to others' interest. This is how the unity this is how the church gathered, stays gathered around the name of Christ, by living like Christ. The church that gathers together in belief in Christ cannot stay together unless they live like Christ. Which is the whole point. The perfect church is one that is not perfect, but one filled with forgiveness. 
If you want to do a word search this afternoon, just go type in forgive or forgiveness or forgiven and look in Paul and Peter's letters. Now, over and over and over, Paul is saying things like forgive as Christ has forgiven you because the church has to learn forgiveness because even the church gathered in the profession of Jesus is Christ but is not living in forgiveness like Jesus Christ will scatter, will be divided, and we will not reflect Christ himself. <coughs> Excuse me. Friends, I wonder if you've begun to take Christ out of the way that you relate to yourself, the world, the church. Take whatever situation you're in, whatever concern you have, and insert Christ. But primarily, the reason that we gather is Christ. Well, this, this fixes two things that happen all the time as a pastor caring for people, two things that I'm prone to all the time in my own heart. One of them is pride. Pride is you beginning to think the thing that matters most about the church is the gospel. That, that's, yeah, that's there. But we've got this other thing that's really, really important, and it's my thing, and I'm, and I'm good at it. I'm going to judge everyone by that thing. That's prideful. You think you've got a better unity in the church than Jesus in the profession that Jesus is the Christ? No, you don't. Don't look at yourself and see yourself as the most faithful, most mature Christian that you know. Just be humbled that we're all gathered here to support one another, to pray for one another, to help each other as followers of Jesus Christ. Pride. The other one that this corrects is disappointment. Disappointment with those romantic ideas, those wishful images, as Bonhoeffer said. People are supposed to understand me all the time. They're supposed to be, the church is supposed to be the nicest people in the world. Yeah, we're trying to get nicer. We're trying to be nice, but we have to learn it. We have to respond to Christ and, and be tender-hearted. So you've been disappointed with the church and its perfection, and it may have hurt you in some significant way in the past. Join the club. I mean, it's messy. What we have in Christ's establishment of the church in the profession that Jesus is Christ, baptized in the name of Christ, living in Christ's likeness, and staying together by forgiving and living like Christ is better than what we could imagine. When the church is seen forgiving each other as Christ forgave us, then the church is glorifying Christ. Not glorifying the cowboys, not glorifying the favorite barbecue, not glorifying your work, not glorifying your status, not glorifying your age, not glorifying your money, not glorifying anything else that could bring us together. It glorifies Christ when we live like Him in grace and mercy and kindness and tenderheartedness and long suffering and forbearance, praying for one another, caring for one another, showing Christ to one another. Sing a lot of songs this morning about unity, but even even though none of them were actually about unity. They're just songs that give us the chance to sing in the plural. We. We. And in this gospel we sang. The church is one. We do not walk alone. We have the Spirit as we press on to lead us safely home. And when in glory, still I will sing of this old story that rescued me. Praise to the Savior, the King of life. I, we, stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Father, thank you so much for your word today. It's so good. Thank you that there's so much meaning through the Bible and are connected, so much helpful encouragement. We even thank you for the things that are convicting. Father, we pray now that you would take the word that we've read, preached, sung today, that it would be convicting, that it would sharply prick our hearts where there is sin and pride. Father, show us if there's any desire in our own hearts to gather for reasons other than Christ, other than centered on Him chiefly. Father, pray that you help us with disappointment this week. And just realize that we, like every church, we're a church that needs to be forgiving one another regularly. The only thing that will hold us together is not just a profession of Christ, but living like Christ. Help us do that. Help us keep that on our minds this week. All the interactions that we have with, with spouses, with church members, with our children, with co-workers. God, help us to live like Christ, remembering Him for us. We love you, Father. We pray this together in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're so glad that you